You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It wasn't really a huge deal when Maine changed its method of assigning its electoral votes in a presidential election. They did it, well, mostly because one guy was so knowledgeable and nobody else in the Maine legislature could keep up with him. No one could match his detailed research, and no one could say no. And it didn't hurt that what he was proposing helped them as well. Okay, so the first thing I want to tell you about is the Patreon site at patreon.com. M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. That's the letters. So patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. That's the letters of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. Go there. We got over 120 content items to unlock, including our special episode on LBJ and the Democratic Convention of 1968. Remember to subscribe to the show, particularly on Apple Podcasts. That helps the show grow in its audience. And also, if you like the show, tell someone about it, guys. Thanks. Glenn Starbird was kind of an interesting fellow, a Democrat from Kingman Township, Maine, about 70 miles north of Bangor. This would put him in Maine's 2nd Congressional District, which will become important a little bit later. And he was a mill worker at the Mattawamkeag Forster Manufacturing Plant. Forster was a company that had several mills across Maine. This was one of them. There he made, with others, toothpicks and clothespins. But he also read lots of books, and he got himself elected to the Maine legislature. And once he got there, well, we're fortunate to have one journalist from the Bangor Times who loved going to the State House to hear the debates, and as a teenager and reporter in training, watched him and found his speeches and observations much, let's say, richer than the average state legislature, laced with intriguing classical references, historical events, out-of-left-field perspectives. So when they were debating whether to make the three-member Maine State Liquor Commission, a one-person commission, a supporter of the bill said, hey, one person is better than three. Remember the unstable second triumvirate in Rome? It was terrible, all those people. Then it was replaced by Augustus, one person, who managed it well. Starbird was kind of like having Cliff Clavin of Cheers in your uh, state legislative body. He rose and said, the incorruptible Augustus was followed very soon by the corruptible Tiberius. So... That legislator was a little sorry he had brought up Roman politics, and his legislation failed. So when it came to the election of 1968, and the votes were split in the nation between Humphrey, Wallace, and Nixon, Starbird thought it would be a shame that a whole state's votes would go for somebody 
based on what might be a vote of 34% of the population, a plurality not reflecting the total opinion intake. His area was far away from the coasts. And as a student of history, he was aware in Maine's beginnings, they actually used an obscure practice. This goes back to the 1820s of casting votes for president, electoral votes by congressional district. And this helped to inspire his 1969 sponsorship of the bill to bring that system back again. The fact that they had not used it in 140 years, notwithstanding. It was notably uncontroversial. It was unanimously adopted by the Republican-controlled legislature. And that's not surprising. After all, Starbird's idea kind of worked in their interest. In that last election, the GOP lost the state of Maine, a state that normally went Republican. Neighboring Vermont went Republican, but Humphrey ran a Mainer. Edmund Munsky, the senator from Maine, is his running mate, and he won the state despite the state going GOP normally. Edmund Muskie was a leading candidate to take on Nixon in 1972. Here, Republicans thought maybe if they lost the state, they might even eke out an electoral vote for their man Nixon, at least. Also, no one could argue with Starbird's detailed work. His committee was the Committee on State Government, and he knew the gobbledygook of Maine's state laws and history. Starbird would actually quit the legislature and end up putting his talents to use to help Maine's Indian tribes to record their history and to represent them and that history in the Maine legislature. He compiled a great historical work, A Brief History of the Indian Legislative Representatives in the Maine Legislatures, 1983. It was said he knew more about Maine's Indian population than even the tribes there did. Starbird sounds like the kind of guy you would like to meet and have a beer with. But his idea didn't really amount to much at least during his remaining lifetime. But in 1972, Maine cast all of its votes for Nixon anyway. There was no discernible difference between the vote statewide and the vote in those congressional districts. And so it would go on in 1976, 1980, 1984, 1988, so on. Nothing came of the idea. And Starbird dies in 1995, not knowing that his idea would actually take root anywhere. And as for another thought that led to the implementation of the rule, that Starbird and other Mainers thought they could lead the nation on a crusade towards elections by congressional district. This doesn't really happen either. There was no national wave. Only one state, one state, years later would take any action. But something changed in politics since then, since even 1995, a polarization that was enough to make Maine's second district very different from Maine's first district. On the surface, that shouldn't be too surprising. Heavy lumber, farming industry district. It's the largest district, Maine 2, east of the Mississippi River. And the 24th largest overall in the country. It is the second most rural district in the United States. 72% of its population live in rural areas. Uh, It has the same population as the first district in Maine, but different politics. And that showed in 2016. It voted for Donald Trump. Thus, Maine awarded one of those four electoral votes it has to a different candidate than the statewide winner, Hillary Clinton. And it was the first time in history that Maine did so. 20 years from Starbird's action, and still in his lifetime, another state would make the change. See, in 1988, Nebraskans started getting jealous. And 20 years before, in 1968, in that election, they got Bobby Kennedy to visit the state. Now, they got nobody. 
Here's an election to be with lots of candidates and nobody was bothering. It's so reliably conservative. Democrats don't bother to come. Republicans don't need to come. So Democratic Representative Deanna Schimek, who some say built the Democratic Party of Nebraska out of her car, traveling around and organizing. She was a senator. Now, Nebraska has a unicameral legislature and the members are called senators. She was a senator from Lincoln, Nebraska, who had a history of fighting for the voiceless, of encouraging more participation. And she proposed this idea. Now, in her history, and Chimak would go on to serve for 20 more years, it was said that she had more vetoes of her ideas than any other senator. But this one got through. Senators, at least a majority of them, wanted to go back to a time when Nebraska mattered on the map. And it would also reward the kind of independent nature of Nebraska's politics. But in 1992, all electors were awarded for Bush and Dole, respectively. And then Dole, respectively, in 1992 and 96. No difference between the congressional districts and the statewide. Same thing in 2000. But Republicans were noticing a problem. Democrats could actually win the thing. The second district has Omaha and its suburbs and has a little bit different politics than the rest of the state, although all three currently are represented by Republican congressmen. So since implementing the congressional district method, Nebraska Republicans have tried to get rid of it at different times. Their feelings about the system turned to reality in 2008, when Barack Obama became the first candidate to win an electoral vote by congressional district in this method, separate from the state's votes, when he wins the second congressional district of Nebraska. It's not decisive in the election, but it was a historical feather in his cap. In 2016, a bill fell one vote short in the Nebraska unicameral, failing in large part due to the efforts of a single state senator, Ernie Chambers. Ernie Chambers is a giant in Nebraska politics, the longest serving state senator, 46 years of service in Nebraska politics, somebody who's known for wearing casual dress, short sleeve sweatshirts, blue jeans, so popular in his district, he doesn't have to campaign, represents Omaha, a defender of the downtrodden, got to start as a civil rights leader in the 1960s, and hasn't stopped fighting. And on this issue, he fought impressively. How'd he do it? How'd he get the idea killed? He proposed, well, if you're going to separate the state by congressional districts, uh, that's good. Um, if you want to get rid of that, I will counterpropose that we do it by legislative districts so we can split up Nebraska's five votes in possibly five different ways. No votes for the statewide winner. By making this counterproposal and by his vociferous opposition, Chambers is able to kill that plan to end the system. And it looks like that paid off, at least for uh, his party, because in the 2020 election, Biden secured Nebraska's second congressional district. He had done it once as a vice presidential candidate in 2008, and now again as a presidential candidate in 2020. But there's a particular history to this whole system of congressional district voting in these two states that in 2020 is the first time that two states split their votes. So both Maine in the second district and Nebraska in the second district voted for Biden, voted for Trump and Biden, respectively, while the statewide voted for Biden and Trump, respectively. And in a sense, it really doesn't matter. 
neither case, in neither case was the vote decisive, though both campaigns acted as if it might be and made sure to secure those additional votes. This is just one of many random kind of less important things about the presidential election. In 2008, I did an episode like this. It was the flotsam and jetsam of the 2008 election. And it's all those things that get forgotten about. Because what's the big news story of this election? Well, Trump lost. Biden won. I mean, I guess depending on what your news media source is or what your epistemological situation is. That's the big news. Biden wins, Trump loses. But there's a couple other things to note. So if I go back to 2008, in that episode, we were noting, hey, it was the first ticket where there are people on the ticket from the last two states to join the, the union, which would be Hawaii and Alaska, things like that. Um, this year, it was a bunch of firsts. I mean, of course, you have to start with the first female vice president will take office, and that person happens to be African-American as well. So the first African-American female on a major party ticket wins election. Now, Shirley Chisholm ran for the presidency in 1972, more of a convention play. Now it finally happens, and it's, it's one of those things that I think rightly will be an inspiration to many people. But Trump has been so overarching in politics lately that even the detail like this we're about to have a female vice president i think there'll be more about it to come when she's actually sworn in but that's after this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know, uh, two nominees, uh, Geraldine Ferraro in 1984 and Sarah Palin in 2008, and then a nominee for president, Hillary Clinton. And you finally see someone cross the finish line. Now, I have to say, in terms of American history... Polling has been done on, would you um, support a president who was female since 1937? Gallup's been asking this question. And three to one, or, or better to say, one in three Americans said they would vote for a woman president if she were qualified in every other respect. So pretty low in 1937. But it goes up very quickly. By 1952, 49% of Americans say yes. By 1959... 57%, the majority, say that they would accept female president. 73% by 1975, 92% by 1999. And there isn't a huge gender gap. And Gallup says that never in the history of doing the poll 
Was there a gender gap of more than 9% on this question? So it's not just simply like men saying, I don't want a woman president. Sometimes in their polling over the years, more men have supported it than women and vice versa. So what I look at that and say, the people were ready. I mean, 57, a majority were telling you that in 1959. And parties and politicians and pundits and press have not been as ready and not have provided the opportunity or took the chance uh, for something that the American people were ready to do. A little bit less important, but something to note, the second Catholic president. I mean, and is that really significant? Does it bring any kind of great issues? No, I don't think so. It's just interesting to note. A great big deal was made of, of course, Al Smith's run in 1928, and it was disastrous for him. Then in 1960, I think it was both a problem and also a plus for John F. Kennedy, depending on what state we're talking about. But it's now been 60 years since there's been a second Catholic president. So it's just a strange and puzzling thing to note, given that um, you know roughly 20% of the population has this religion. We're still a country that thinks about presidents as Protestants. And that would have been right in the view of the of the early Americans, what their expectations were. And we haven't gotten too far away from that. So I guess it's just a note that the pace of change is slow. And although I think that long term, it's best that we get away from labels and get away from, you know, identity, you have to, you know, the proof of the puddings in the eating too, you know, you have to see that there's more representation before people are ready to go there. And so um, the more positive way to think about it is this will be inspiring to see that there's you know rep- more representation broadly and that the next people that run don't have to feel as limited. There's no auto-renew on the presidency. This is another election that shows that when an incumbent president is defeated in some sense, it's a positive for democracy, that democracy is working, that you can't simply by being president hold on to that. Um, it keeps presidents on their toes. It should, if he's smart, keep uh, Biden and Kamala Harris on their toes, that uh, winning is not guaranteed. Now, I have said that Americans generally across the board do prefer to reelect presidents than not. But you have an example here. You don't get an auto-renew. It was getting strange there. Three presidents in a row had been re-elected and served their, their two eligible terms. 36 years of presidents. Generation Z has been around and not seen a president not re-elected. Millennials have only seen one, and that would be George H.W. Bush in 1992, and Gen Xers were lucky to see three and a resignation. Yeah. But who cares about the generations? That's not my point. You get into endless arguments of what age does that start and blah, 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 blah. That's not my point. It's just to show how unbroken this record of his presence being reelected. And it's not, you know, not that unusual, but it's also something that you didn't want to see necessarily continuing for too long. The presidency is a powerful office. And if I might jump into a little bit of the politics discussion, one thing I was rather unhappy with was to see interference with the post office during an election. That is an example of a trend that if any president does it, is something that's obviously bad for democracy. And it shows you the danger that I think was envisioned by some of the people who ratified the Constitution or didn't ratify it, didn't vote to ratify it as well, 
as to what the dangers of a, an office like the presidency could be and why I think a, there's a lot of wisdom behind the thinking of the 22nd Amendment in at least limiting the person to two terms. The importance of an economy to a president's reelection is again affirmed. A better way to say it, you don't win reelection if the country's in recession. Now, we can also, I think, based on 2020, apply something else. The caveats don't matter either. What do I mean by that? It doesn't matter how that recession or economy, bad economy happens. Um, Jimmy Carter is not reelected, despite the fact that there's job growth. 10 million new jobs are added during his presidency, but there's a recession. He loses. George H.W. Bush has a recession that many economists are saying in 92 is already wrapping up. It's, it's starting to pace out in terms of the negative GDP growth by the time people are voting in November. It doesn't matter. He's punished for it, whether it's fair or not, whatever. Presidents are punished for it. Here you had an open question. You had an obviously economy, an obvious recession. People were out of work, could not actually report to their jobs safely, let's say. And um, the argument could be made, well, that's not a real economy problem. That's a coronavirus problem, not the president's fault or, or things like that. And then, of course, you could get into the issue, well, it's because of the management of the coronavirus. Yeah, that's where it seems most American voters, at least in this election, went. But looking at other elections, there's no caveats. Economy has to be good, or at least moderate, for you to be reelected as a president. Um, Julia Zari, who's a professor that we've quoted before, now she's at 538.com. While the coronavirus pandemic was and is an extraordinary event, the economic crisis it, it produced actually falls somewhat in line with situations faced by other one-term presidents. It's true that many voters still had a positive opinion of Trump's handling of the economy, even amid this year's massive layoffs. But public opinion data also suggested that voters were particularly worried about the pandemic. Furthermore, they generally thought Trump had done a poor job of handling it, making it difficult to untangle the public health crisis from the economic downturn it caused. Yeah, as president, voters tend to hold you responsible for what's done on your watch. It's not always fair. I did a whole episode of The President Doesn't Create Jobs, and I believe that. Not always fair. It's just what happens. Uh, you can also get lucky. I believe that Ronald Reagan, for instance, in 1984, got extremely lucky. In 1982, there's a terrible recession, one that he never would have been reelected if, if that was the year of his reelection. But it happened two years before, and he had great GDP growth in 1983. And pretty good GDP growth in 1984 as well, making it difficult to run against him when Americans were feeling good, at least about the economic situation. Okay, so some presidents can even engineer things. I think Nixon's the best example, 1972, actually uses wage and price controls to just make it not be a recession. Um questionable wisdom of doing that. And also, it's hard to tell if that was the reason he was reelected because he was running against McGovern. Another factoid, for those of us who like to think that nobody wins in politics, right, that the idea that your party's going to win is a fallacy. Uh, it's going to be a constant struggle between usually two parties. I mean, there could be a third. There could be an independent movement. Uh, there could be a combination of 
of it. But it's generally a conflict between a party that might be more collective thinking and a party that's more individualistic to really break it down into simple parts. You will have in the first quarter of the 21st century, 50-50 ownership of the White House. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Talking about third parties, the libertarian vote has been increasing. In 2020, it wasn't huge, but it was 1.8 million votes, little more than 1% of the vote. That's a big increase from less than half a percent in 1988, when Ron Paul Sr. was running. It's something for both parties to really think about. There's a reason that people are casting the lever for that party. I Really, the libertarian viewpoint is much stronger than that party reflects. So both parties need to think about what's in their platform and how do they appeal to some of those voters. Because in when you're winning Georgia by 12,000 votes, um, you might want to think about how do you get some more. Popular vote compact in Colorado. So Colorado voters by 52 to 48% confirm that they want to be in the popular vote compact. The popular vote compact is a group of states right now at 16 that if they get enough states to go to 270, those states will vote, will cast their electors for the national popular vote winner. And you will, in effect, if it works, have a national popular vote. It's highly interesting. Colorado, that's adding a lot of fuel to that fire. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's going to be difficult that you get the additional states needed. But if somehow Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, New Hampshire, and a few other states were able to sign up for it, you would have 270, which would mean without actually doing anything with the Constitution, these states could, in effect, end the Electoral College being the factor in picking the president. Now, there's probably going to be a lawsuit if it's ever enacted because there is a compact clause in the Constitution which says states can't make deals with each other. And the ruling case on this is Virginia versus Tennessee. It goes back to the 1890s. Virginia and Tennessee tried to settle a border dispute among themselves. And the Supreme Court said, Virginia and Tennessee can't do that. Congress does that. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. Article 1, Section 10. The counterargument to the Compact Clause argument is that the Popular Vote Compact, despite its name, is merely a group of states pledging to what they can do in their individual power. Each state is individually, constitutionally empowered to, to decide on how to assign their electoral college votes. 
they're not doing anything with this compact that they couldn't do otherwise. Whereas Virginia and Tennessee may have been stepping outside their state control to make their own borders because they exist in a union of states. So it's going to be an interesting battle if that comes. Now, someone might say, well, wait, you're saying states can assign their electoral votes. These mean that these legislatures that want to, uh, that people are talking about, the legislators can just say this is the winner of Michigan's vote, say, and send them in to Congress. No, uh, that's something that would have to be done before the election occurs. So that's why you have a popular vote compact in place now for these states, and each state will have to decide. So an interesting development, but one that's right now you can just kind of tuck it. The Prohibition Party got 5,000 votes. We talked about them in the Don't Run for President episode. Their candidate was Phil Collins, 1L, not the same guy. He tried to get the uh, candidacy of the American Independent Party and the Reform Party to boost his chances. That did not work out. But an interesting thing about the Prohibition Party, could not have a convention this year, just a conference call, is that they will be a party for quite a long time because there is a trust fund that's set up by George L. Pennock, a Pennsylvanian and wealthy Prohibition Party supporter. He ran for governor in 1926 and set up a trust upon his death in 1937 that continues to fund the Prohibition Party today. It pays about $8,000 annually to assist the Prohibition Party. About half of it goes to the Pennsylvania Prohibition Party and the rest to the National Prohibition Party to assist with their expenses. So at least they have enough to get on the ballot, say. First president from Delaware. I mean, Delaware signs the Constitution. It's the first state. And what's the thanks that it gets? No president for 230 years. Well, people in the first state can celebrate to some extent that uh, Joseph Biden, a longtime politician in that state, gets their vote. It does not mean, by the way, that Delaware was universal. In fact, Biden gets about 58% of the vote in Delaware and wins two out of three counties. So the county of Sussex County, Delaware, actually does not vote for Biden, but votes for Donald Trump. Now, most of the population is in Newcastle County, where Wilmington is and where Biden, before he was a, ran for Senate in 1972, was a county commissioner. You haven't seen um, a lot of candidates from Delaware. I guess having the three electoral votes and continuing to have that through history has not helped them to woo parties to say this would be a great candidate. Uh, your notable names, of course, Joseph Biden in 1988, who might have been a formidable candidate if he was able to get through some of the problems then. And then, um, as you know from our episode in the 1988 election, he got caught up on a plagiarism charge that was connected between a speech that he had taken from a labor leader, Neil Kinnock, uh, in the United Kingdom, who was running a pretty good campaign in 1987. And Biden took one of his lines. In other speeches he had quoted, but at the Iowa State Fair, he did not quote Kinnock as being the person who made the speech and also used the same phraseology. So in other words, he said, you know, I have minors in my family when they looked it up and Biden's uh, relatives in Scranton were not minors. So he got tripped up on that. An interesting little side note on that is that Neil Kinnock, the guy that he cribbed off of, did endorse Biden in this 2020 election. So no hard feelings there. And uh, of course, Kinnock is a uh, former labor leader. He never got the chance to be prime minister and uh, he can't vote in American elections. 
Although Delaware has not had a candidate, it's interesting to note two of their politicians with the same name have been involved in picking who would be president, and that is Thomas Bayard, the original Thomas Bayard Sr., in 1800, was the key decider between Jefferson and Aaron Burr when those votes were deadlocked in Congress. And when you hear, you know, the Hamilton musical or in other sources that Hamilton influenced some Federalists to vote for Jefferson and decided that way after the deadlock because of the two, Jefferson was the lesser of two evils for the Federalists. Bayard has to be part of that story. So we think maybe Bayard was influenced by Hamilton or talked to Hamilton or, or you know, corresponded with him or, or otherwise or just saw his message. There's also some interesting conversations that happened through Samuel Smith, who would have had contact with Jefferson, that perhaps there was some type of deal. Because in both Wilmington and in Philadelphia, those custom offices were, could have well been replaced by Jefferson to put Republican officials in there, but Federalists were kept in that office, something that Thomas Bayard would have liked. So possibly a deal was made. Uh, no proof of that. A few score years later, you have Thomas Francis Bayard, who in 1884 goes to the convention for the Democrats and is a candidate for president in his own right. He's a popular senator. He is from Delaware, not a lot of votes, but he's a possibility. And seeing that people are going towards Grover Cleveland, the governor of New York, he decides to trade and give up his give up his candidacy in exchange for an office. So in this case, Treasury Secretary is what he's granted. Grover Cleveland doesn't know about the deal, doesn't like the deal, but appoints him nonetheless. Doesn't want to go back on the word that someone gave in his name. And does end up liking Bayard, and Bayard becomes Secretary of State. So in two cases, Delawareans have had an impact on the presidency. This is the first Delawarean to win the presidency. These are the kind of the, the in, some interesting additional facts. We talked about counties before, so I just want to get into a couple of county results that are interesting in the 2020 election. And one is that Delaware County, Pennsylvania, this is a Philadelphia suburb, which had always been Republican, but recently has been voting Democrat in presidential elections. They've been controlled by Republican county machines, say, since the time of the Civil War. And for the first time in 2020, that went to Democratic control with Biden at the top of the ticket. Biden is popular in the Philadelphia suburb area. He is popular in his hometown of Scranton. He spent the last day there at a hokey shop. And that paid off because Lackawanna County, he not only went for Biden, but he increased his vote over Hillary Clinton there, won the state of Pennsylvania. He's a longtime senator from Delaware, Delaware. Wilmington, Philadelphia share a common media market. Biden was fond. Um, one of his, sometimes I call them like gaffes with a payoff. One of his gaffes with a payoff, he's constantly referring to himself as Pennsylvania's third senator. And people in Delaware would get mad about it. But it did pay off for him. I think one of the reasons Obama picked him on the ticket in 2008 is that they did want to carry Pennsylvania. And somebody from Delaware can help you with that, including somebody who was born in Scranton. So Delaware County is an interesting thing. On the reverse end, though, there were disappointments. Uh, Mahoning County, Ohio, has got to be one of those. for de It's voted Democrat in every election since 1972 when McGovern was running, and it gave a pretty, it was pretty close then. 
It overwhelmingly votes for Walter Mondale. It votes 62% for Barack Obama. But in the 2016 election, this town, which was a industrial, you know, steel town, Youngstown is in it, goes 49 to 47% for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So you see a change there. Well, it just went 50 to 48 for Trump and turned Republican for the first time since 72. Now, notable in both Mahoning County and in Ohio is that the population has not grown as fast as the rest of the country. In fact, in Mahoning County, it has shrunk. So there were 126,000 voters in 1972, last time a Republican won, and there's 116 now. So you've lost about 10,000 voters. But this is all at a time when the U.S. population has increased 60% over that time. Similar with Ohio, you've had about 45% upward growth when the U.S. has increased 60%. The result of it is the loss of the Cleveland metro area for Demo- as a significant contributor to votes for Democrats. What do the Democrats have left? It's the southern part of the state, which puts them in the odd situation in Ohio of where, say, the Democratic Party in the 1860s would have been, like relying on the Cincinnati area and the um, Franklin County, the Columbus, which recently Franklin County has become the larger metro area of the state. It, it, in 2017, it exceeded Cleveland. Uh, so long-term problems for Ohio Democrats there, and I think most Republicans running for president are going to build Ohio into their base rather than considering it uh, too much of a swing. On the opposite end, the same might be uh, said of Minnesota, where there was some thought that that would be a swing state, and it really came out for Democrats quite early. Um, a couple other notes, you know, Redistricting is going to be tough for Democrats. They did not win a lot of the state legislatures they were targeting. They lose the New Hampshire, even while Biden's carrying the the state. Uh, in certain cases like Pennsylvania, they're going to have to share a redistricting plan between the governor who has a veto and the legislature who's going to draw it up. So you have things really, I think, for Democrats, you got to be very concerned about the 2022 midterms already because they – didn't do that well in House races this year, and Biden have coattails. Most first-term presidents do not see a good result unless there's some type of national emergency or great event. They do not see good results in the first-term midterm. So we shall see what happens there. Um, other than that, I hope you enjoyed this little walk through some of the more interesting and less noticeable events of the 2020 election. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.